and Fred, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love history and making things um, that are sometimes historical and sometimes not. Um, and we normally like to start by talking about what we've been making. So what have you been up to? Um, I made some more dice. Oh, fantastic. Oh, I think I've seen a picture. These are the ones that are flowery. Yes, they're transparent with flowers in, and then the numbers are in like a copper colour. Oh, which are a gift for my first ever DM who should have received them today, hopefully, like the day we're recording. Oh, brilliant. So that's that's exciting, and they're very pretty. And I haven't done transparent stuff before, but I think it worked out well because you can see the flowers. Okay. So I'm pleased with that. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So, sorry, that's um, how many did you say you've made up? Um, I haven't been counting. I have a dice problem, okay. Look, I started an actual play podcast. Clearly I need more dice. Well, yeah. For all the all the NPCs. <laughs> They've gotta be bespoke. Uh that feels like something for the probably probably bad one, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> dice for every NPC. Um What else have I been doing? I made Honey cake? Um, Sounds tasty. Not the, like, big sticky one that I normally make. I instead replaced all of the sugar in a Victoria sponge with honey. Ah, I see. Well, was it still, um, like, light and fluffy? Yeah, like, it was definitely a runnier mixture. Mm -hmm. I would not recommend doing it in a cake bigger than the one I did, which was... Eight ounces of things and then three eggs. Uh-huh. But for that, it made a really nice like tray bake cake, and then I did lemon icing and poppy seeds. Oh, nice. So really, it's honey and lemon. It's good for you. Always a good combination, yeah. According to my dad, it goes very well with Turkish coffee. Oh. I wish I drank coffee. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't either. It also goes very well with a strong cup of tea. Okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but I feel like it probably contrasts more with coffee. Yeah, I feel like coffee is a, a, like a flavour that would affect things. Mm. Which is why, you know, I wish I liked it, because then I could experience the coffee combinations, but mm. no. Certain flavours remain forbidden. <laughs> so what what have you been up to? Um, Well... Not that much, and also a fair amount, because I have COVID right now. Um, yeah, it's it's unfun. It hasn't been too terrible, um, but I have been quite tired and not really able to do that much, except sitting down and hand sewing. So I've been doing that <laughs> a fair amount. Um sewing? I'm working on my first um, set of medieval reenactment kits. So I have um, a medieval event coming up next weekend, um, which will be my first. Like I've done a little bit of reenactment before, like way back in the day, 
Um, yeah, so I've done it a little bit back back in the day, but this is my first like proper one, really. So I'm really excited. I'm gonna get to dress up and do crafts all weekend. Um, and so I'm currently making uh, my shift, which is the linen under layer that will go under my woolen dress, which is already uh, finished. So yeah, it's coming along nicely. It's just kind of a triangles and rectangles job, really. Um, but it's it's been really good actually for the past few days because I can just sit down and do some plain sewing um and I am hand sewing the whole thing because um apparently I like doing that <laughs> but I always wonder why it takes me so long I mean it's not like medieval people would have had sewing machines that's true but also I do and I want to have more time <laughs> <laughs> so suck it medieval people <laughs> You say hand sewing a shift. I know, but I'm doing it for funsies. I don't have to. I can pick up my sewing machine whenever I want. Well, the finishing has to be hand sewn, but um... it's like the reverse of I can quit whenever I want to. It's I can start whenever I want to. I just don't want to. Exactly. <laughs> but I am enjoying it, and um, it is it is nearly done. So. <laughs> I will I will try and put a picture of myself in full kit when I have it. Um Exciting. Yeah, it'll be fun. The dress is very swishy. I am excited. And I will be taught how to use a bunch of natural dyes, because they have a master dyer, which is very jealous. Yeah, very exciting. Um oh and I also made some pistachio lemon and courgette cake. Oh. Yeah, which is really nice. Uh, and doesn't have that much courgette in it, actually. <laughs> but I, I think it does add something. It is a very like moist but not greasy cake. It's a moist vegetable. Yeah, it is. That's exactly what it is. Oh, okay. Before we get too too far on the amusing vegetable train, what is our topic for this week? So. The day that this goes up is the 31st of July, which mm -hmm. is the last day of Disability Pride Month. Ah, yes. So I thought, what is, what is the symbol of disability that we see on all of the signs for anything accessible, regardless of whether that accessibility is to do with mobility or not, let's be honest. Um, so I looked into the wheelchair. Fantastic. Um, turns out there's not a lot of information out there, possibly because most of history was just kind of, uh, why should we care about disabled people? Which mm. is why Disability Pride Month is a thing. And I'm, I'm glad it's a thing now. Because um, we're people is the thing about, about us disabled. And confirm that Liz is a person. <laughs> You've met me several times. I, I have seen them. Um, but yeah, I, that kind of surprises me that there's not that much. Because I, I imagine it's something people will have needed for forever, basically. Well, it appears that what people mostly used was 
don't move the person unless it's absolutely necessary and then use what is essentially a wheelbarrow with some cushions in it if you can afford them. Okay. We do have some ancient depictions of wheeled furniture. There's um, a Greek vase which shows a child's bed with wheels on for presumably for moving the child around who cannot move themselves. Um, and Confucius is thought to have used a wheelchair. There's a woodblock print from the 6th century BC, which the vase is also from, that looks kind of like a wheeled couch. And then there's later prints in what looks more like a rickshaw-type up which I will share an image of that one. Um, the print is from around 1680 apparently, but it suggests that you know people were using something wheelchair-esque when Confucius was actually around, which is sixth uh, and fifth century BC. Okay, that that does look like in in a way similar to a modern wheelchair like it's it's a wheeled sitting contraption it's a wheeled chair <laughs> it is um but these it's thought that these were more of sort of general transporting a rich person hence sort of the the rickshaw similarity or an important person um, the first wheelchair that seems to have been specifically designed for a disabled person um, was, well, it's it's called an invalid chair, invalid being, you know, a very old-fashioned and offensive name for people with um, especially mobility issues, but also just disabled people and chronically ill people generally. Mm -hmm. um, seems to have been invented for Philip II of Spain, who in 1595 was rendered unable to walk by gout. Ah, okay. Um, there's images of this. It does not look comfortable. Oh, no. Like... It's got visible visible cushions on this image, but it's still oh, like I, I still wouldn't enjoy it. I don't think. Yeah, that's um. So it's essentially a chair with very small wheels on the bottom of each of the legs. <laughs> yeah, again, a a wheeled chair. It looks kind of like one of those garden recliner chairs. Yeah, it does have an adjustable backrest, so you can you can lie okay. the king down for a bit if he's getting tired. Okay. Um. It it wasn't self propelled, but that didn't really matter because he was the king of Spain. He had people to propel for him. <laughs> I mean, it must have been incredibly frustrating for him having to rely on people to move him around, but he at least did have people who could do that. Yeah. People whose whole job was, like, move the king around. 
We don't get self-propelled chairs until uh, 1655, which is still earlier than I thought it would be, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's still quite early. Um, with uh, Stephen Farfler. That's a good name. Uh, it's German. Who was a watchmaker, so naturally knew a fair bit about gears. And made... It's almost like a recumbent bicycle in how you actually use it. Um, it's kind of a it's a low seat with a box in front with pedals on the outside that you operate with your hands and then it's got oh. two wheels at the back and one in the front so you sort of pedal it with your hands to propel yourself around oh wow that I see. Um, oh, yeah, that's like, yeah, turning the handles to propel. Wow. And he invented that when he was 22, and he is is believed to have been uh, paraplegic. Okay. This was a thing that this watchmaker made for himself. Yeah. Which I think is, is very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, that's... That's kind of, I guess the thing that must be frustrating about the subject is because there must have been throughout history so many things that people just sort of figured out or fixed up for themselves because they needed something. And we just don't know about it because they weren't famous or rich or... Literate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of disability history seems to be, there wasn't this thing and it made someone... <laughs> who needed it so cross that they made it. Um, which, like, you know, there's very much an element of he had the resources and the knowledge to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but variations on the Farfa wheelchair were still being used up to the 1910s. Um, right. There's actually one in the collection of the Science Museum in London. Oh, cool. Um, and hand-powered, well, they're called bicycles, but they do still have three wheels, like the Farfla wheelchair. Hand-powered bikes are a thing. Like, people still use them now as as bicycles. Oh, okay. Because so, I've seen the, the lying-down bicycles. Yeah. Um, a few times. Um which looks kind of a bit similar to this, I guess, but you use your feet instead to pedal. Yeah, it's definitely very similar to, like I said, to a recumbent bike. Okay. Which, yeah, if you... And I'm going to put these pictures up on the Twitter, but if you want to imagine <laughs> what it looks like, it's basically a recumbent bicycle, but you use your hands. Um. Yeah, so that that's... You either have that or something that's much more the sort of King Philip school of things. Up until um, the 1780s, when you get what's called the bath chair, which I think is a fairly well-known version. I I do actually know that because... Oh, wait, hold on. I, I don't know if this is the same thing. Um, but there were the bath chairs that were kind of used almost as, like, taxis for people that's the um, ones 
Okay, because we had them. Um, I I did a uh, radical history tour. That's the one of um, my town um, last year, um, which I had to learn a bunch of stuff for. And one of them was um, one of the bath chairmen uh, of the town who uh, had had written a, a sort of explanation of what, of what life was like for the bath chairmen on their low wages um but yeah so this is the the other side of the story yeah so these are well they're called bath chairs because they were invented in bath which is a place that a lot of people would visit because they were ill in order to to take the waters mm. um as I'm sure anyone who's read literally any Regency novel will know. <laughs> Everyone ends up in Bath. The the special magical water that will make you not ill anymore. Mm. Um, and is now deemed not safe to drink or even go into. <laughs> Genuinely, I visited the Roman baths and the signs everywhere saying, don't get in the water, it's really bad. Yeah, I remember going there uh, a few years ago, and it did not look appealing, I have to say. It looked appealing when I went, but I don't know if that's just because it was warm and the weather was cold. <laughs> it was just this nice pool of warm water, and then you're like, oh, it kind of smells like rotten eggs, and what's that sign say? <laughs> don't get in it! <laughs> Were you tempted by the forbidden baths? I was a little bit. <laughs> um... So these were often wicker. Mm-hmm. Um, again, not self-propelled. But you'd have a handle in front where you could steer it. They were originally designed to be propelled actually by a donkey or a horse. Oh, didn't know that. But as as you said, the they very quickly switched to hiring strong young lads to to move move these people around between yeah, you can... hotels and the the baths and the pump room, which was a building next door where you could go and drink some of the water. You can still see um in the the town where I live there's like a little plate at the bottom of some of the walls, which is the bath chair stand where they would wait for customers. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, um, they weren't just for people who had mobility issues. These were, as as you said, Hazel, they were basically taxis for a lot of people, like one-person taxis to get to the baths, to the pump room, back to your hotel. But people would um, take them in various places, like down to the seaside and things as well, if they were sea bathing for health. There's a lot, a lot of things about water and health, while at the same time having actual baths was sometimes seen as unhealthy. It's kind of a weird thing. It's specific yeah. water is good for you, not that water. You've got to come to, come to where I've opened my expensive hotel and have the water there. Ah, this water is okay because it costs money. I I paid this guy who calls himself a doctor to say this water is good for you. <laughs> Ah, the 18th century. <laughs> well, a lot of place names did well out of it. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, so around this time you do start getting wheelchairs showing up in catalogues of surgical and medical instruments, okay. largely as a means of transporting patients either around hospitals, to and from doctor's appointments, or just for people to use in their houses. Oh, so were these accessible to just normal people as well? Like anyone who could afford the thing could order it? Um, I think at this point it was more your doctor could suggest that you could buy one through him. Ah, okay. Although some richer people did did just buy them themselves, but a lot of those people would have had doctors in the family just because of the nature mm. of the medical institution at this point. So I think that would have probably still been through a doctor. Okay. Just not necessarily officially. Um, but some of these were these like big iron things with huge wheels that would require more than one person to push them around. Oh, wow. They were also really hard to steer. Because, you know, modern wheelchairs tend to have big wheels at the back and then smaller ones at the front. Yeah. Uh, these would often be the other way around, which makes steering really difficult. Oh, yeah. That doesn't seem like a good idea. So hard to steer, way too heavy to self-propel, <laughs> even if you could. Just generally not great. Uh, this is... I'm having a bad time. This is as part of... I'm studying occupational therapy. And um, part of what these do is like um, optimizing wheelchairs and things, and it's just this. This is giving me nervous feels. Yeah, it's it's not great. Um, it. I think what it is not to get into systemic. Um, it's a th a symptom. I think of. Moving these people around is really inconvenient for us. Mm. Rather than, hey, I am a person who would like to be able to move around. So I think the the existence of the word invalid tells you everything you need to know, really. Mm. So when do we get um, sort of more workable wheelchairs um in the 1860s actually um there's a pattern in the u.s for one that has small wheels at the front and large wheels at the back that the user can use to propel themselves okay um in the 1870s we start getting rubber wheels because that technology is finally here. Which makes them a lot more comfortable to move around in. Because you don't feel literally every bump in the back. Uh, the big moment for wheelchairs actually seems to be the American Civil War. Okay, that kind of makes sense actually. Because I guess you would have a lot of people who had become disabled. Hmm. Especially in terms of just lost limbs. Mm -hmm. 
Um, those were often wooden with cane seats and backs. So again, we're moving towards actual comfort for the person using the wheelchair. Good. Um, in eighteen eighty one, we get push rims, which are those the metal bars next to the wheel, specifically for grabbing onto rather than grabbing the tire. Ah, uh, okay. And in nineteen twelve, very exciting. Oh, we get the first power chair. The power chair. It had a whole, almost two horsepower. <laughs> Wait, do you mean, like, an electric one? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, invented by um, George Klein. Um, we get mass manufacturing shows up in London in 1916, which, again, is a big thing going on, causing a lot of people to need help moving around. Yes. Quite famously. Yeah. Um, they still weren't great because they were they had to be quite heavy just because the motors were not small. Okay. But you could at least use them to like move around your home but on your own, go down to the end of the day like that. Yeah, that that at least Which is still a massive improvement. Definitely. And he did actually work with doctors and um, people with mobility impairments and amputees to make sure that it was comfortable and usable. Oh, good. Which is really cool. Yeah. I'm glad to say. It's 1916. He could have just gone, it's a chair, it's got wheels, go for your life. Yeah. That sounds like uh, a lot of what's gone before. With the exception of this guy who actually needed one. Yeah, we, we support Farfla. Absolutely. But also wish that his design had got more traction. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, the Farfla chair was still in production all this time, but clearly not hugely widespread if we're getting all of these other, other ones coming up. Mm. And, like... Like, I've looked into disability history before for other things and just for my own curiosity. And you don't really get surviving examples of it that much, which is surprising. I suppose it does. Like, it does look like I like said, it... the Science Museum has one, but there's not, there's not much. It does look like it takes up a fair amount of space, I suppose. So I, I imagine it would be quite difficult to move around your house in it. Mm. Um, we do get more lightweight ones in the 30s. Um, so an engineer named Harry Jennings had a friend, uh, Herbert Everest, who was paralysed in a mining accident. Mm -hmm. And he invented a folding wheelchair for him made of tube, like tubes of steel, very similar to um, the wheelchairs that you get in a hospital. Oh, wow. Uh, they founded the Everest and Jennings Company, which was basically the wheelchair manufacturer for a very long time. It's cool that they went into business together. Mm. But yeah, if you've, if you've ever like been in a hospital, you've probably seen a folding tubular steel wheelchair. 
Mm-hmm. And then now you have things like mobility scooters, which I think do come under wheelchairs. There's some controversy about that, apparently. But it's it's a wheeled thing. Yeah, it's a wheeled mobility. vehicle. Um, but now there's also there's things like um, manual wheelchairs you can propel using only one arm. Mm-hmm. Which is, is incredibly useful for, you know, some people only have the use of one arm. Or even only have one arm. Um, people have been working on things like standing wheelchairs or wheelchairs that can, like, raise you up a bit so you can reach high things. Oh, that's fantastic. Like, it's really exciting just occasionally seeing this, like, cool new wheelchair design that someone's come up with. But the the standing ones are ones that are ones that can like raise you up occasionally are really good as well because apparently they um, reduce occurrence of things like uh, UTIs, oh, which can, yeah, can yeah. be an issue if you're sitting all of the time, mm-hmm. and oh, obviously help cool. with things like pressure sores, which is also a risk if you're not moving around. Yeah, yeah, definitely. the The seat has to be like exactly right to reduce risk. But there's there's so many cool ones now. There's racing wheelchairs. There's sports wheelchairs. Like yes, wheelchair yes. rugby is a thing. Oh my gosh! Is, which is apparently nicknamed Murder Ball because it's so violent. <laughs> which is very fun to watch, actually. Okay. Like I love watching rugby anyway, but Murder Ball is another level. Um, all terrain wheelchairs seem to be. Oh yeah. A big thing that's co- popping up, especially. Um, for some beach resorts, actually, the, these wheelchairs with basically caterpillar treads that can go over the sand very easily. Okay. Oh, cool. I've, I've seen a few articles about um, people using them for hiking and and sort of going up big hills and things with them, which is really cool. Yeah, like the, the history of wheelchairs, I mean, will never be over, really. Mm-hmm. Because there's always going to be people that need them, but just the the variety of them that is now available is so cool. Yeah. Now, if only they were covered by people's medical insurance and also more affordable generally. <laughs> that's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> but that that's a rant for another time. <laughs> so that is, I say, very whistle stop tour through the history of wheelchairs. I would like for there to be more on it, but it's honestly very hard to find stuff about the history of any disability that isn't. Mm-hmm. And here's how people tried to treat it and were really horrible to the people who had these problems. Yeah, it sounds like the kind of area where the voice of the actual like person experiencing this is not easy to find. Yeah. That Even said, though... if anyone knows of any books or anything like that that I have not been able to, to find for whatever reason, do email us. Because um, I yeah. would love to learn more about this. <laughs> that It would be great to know, because for something that was so wide and is so widely experienced, there must be something out there. RPG ideas should be good, right? But what this podcast supposes is Maybe they don't have to be. 
The Probably Bad Podcast brings you ideas like dire humans, fight your GM in real life, and what if there is an eye laser man? Listen to The Probably Bad Podcast, available everywhere podcasts exist, and some places where they don't. So what is Aldo Colada this week? Uh, right, so... Um, this is kind of inspired uh, by... Um, I am going to France on holiday um, in a few weeks and uh, my partner and I are doing a cycling holiday and one of the places that we are going to go through is the town of Neufchâtel which has a cheese named after it. Oh, oh, we do like a cheese. Oh yeah, it's a regional cheese. <laughs> we need a uh, jingle for cheeses. <laughs> we do. Uh, in fact, it is a regional cheese that is under an AOC-controlled designation of origin label. Oh, very exciting. Yeah, it's it's one of those cheeses. Texas regional cheese. Uh-huh. It's, it's one of those uh, foods that you're not allowed to reproduce uh, or at least you're not allowed to call it by the um the regional name unless it's made in the area uh which is a lot of things in europe <laughs> mm. otherwise it's just sparkling cheese <laughs> i i sincerely hope not <laughs> That's taking us back into the Sicilian cheese territory. Oh uh, gosh, let's let's not go. Sardinian cheeses. Um. Oh, is that the one? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I um. I have to admit, I don't really want to go back and check. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Neufchatel cheese is a um kind of a soft cheese, although it has um more of the whey drained out of it than other cheeses in the region um apparently that that is the hallmark of Neufchatel cheese um according to culture magazine tagline the word on cheese excellent this appears to be a cheese making magazine which is wonderful <laughs> Um, yeah, and um, it comes from the town of Neufchâtel-en-Bray in the Normandy region of France, uh, which is a region known for its produce, um, because it's like quite a fertile region, good grass um, for cows, which means good milk and lots of cheeses. Um, and it's also quite close to Paris, so it became quite well known through being sold in the markets of Paris. Um, although it's not as well known as other famous French cheeses like your Camembert, your Brie, um, but uh, it, it is apparently quite regionally well known. Mm-hmm. Um, so this cheese uh, is actually quite old. Uh, I have read that it's likely uh, being made as early as the 6th century, but I haven't been able to find much else on that. 
um, but it's definitely known to have been made since the 11th century, so it yeah, is... still quite an old cheese. Yeah. That is still quite an old cheese. Um, now, it doesn't actually keep that long, so... Oh, it is not literally. <laughs> um, but uh, this the cheese has been made this way for some hundreds, hundreds of years. And it's down to the particular sort of climate of the region, as I said, all that grass, and the breed of cow, um, which is the Normandy cow, or the Normand, um, which under the IOC status, um, which it's protected under, it has to be made in this region um, of Neuchatel. And... Hey. So the way you phrase that strongly implied that the cow has to be made in the region. It does. It has to be this Normandy breed of cow. <laughs> they changed the rules in 2006. Because <laughs> before that, um, some farmers were using other breeds, which I presumably would produce more, more milk or I don't know. Um, but now it has well, to mean... be... No, I mean, it sounded like the cow has to have been born there. <laughs> I guess the cow has to have been, like, conceived there. It has to be made in the region. I don't, I don't want to know how you would uh, certify that. Um, but, <laughs> but it does have to be this uh, traditional breed um, mm -hmm. that, that produces the milk. Uh, to make Neufchatel cheese. Interestingly, um, the first cream cheese made in America, the first American variety of cream cheese, was made by um, slightly changing the Neufchatel recipe. Uh, so there you go. Uh, I think they added cream to it um, to make sort of a, a, a softer cream cheese. Um, yeah. So one of the iconic things about Neufchatel cheese is that it often comes in a heart shape. That's nice. It is. Uh, the story about this is that uh, the during the Hundred Years' War, um, the the French farm women, um, lots of them supposedly fell in love with English soldiers who were stationed in the region and made heart-shaped cheeses to give to them. Sure. Which see is... this what this is one of the rare stories on this podcast that I can actually believe. <laughs> really, it it tracks. A lot of them <laughs> don't even do that. I guess. I mean, yeah. Like, I guess. I guess it's definitely possible. Like, it's a fairly easy thing to do. I guess. Just like shape your cheese into a heart. Oh, <laughs> I'm I'm choosing to believe this story because <laughs> it makes me happy. It is cute. Um, <laughs> although one one of the versions of this story that I read was um, they were made to send to them in their their lovers back in England, um, which, I mean, I. It's not a long crossing over the channel, but it would still take a while with no refrigeration. So I don't, I don't know about Especially that. Especially with a war on. Yeah. 
so we'll see uh, about that. <laughs> but there are actually several shapes that it traditionally comes in. Um, so you can have the carré, which is a square shape, a briquette, brick-shaped. Um, the bond, which um, is plug-shaped, apparently. The cur, which is the heart. Uh, the double bond, um, which is the heavier one. And then there's a grand cur, which is a large heart-shaped cheese. Beautiful. You're going to have to take pictures if you get... Oh, absolutely. I'm going to see... One. Hopefully there's room in the saddlebag for a large heart-shaped Neuf-Chatel cheese. I'm really <laughs> excited to try it. Like, I, it's going to be... I'm going to hunt it down. <laughs> <laughs> no cheese will be safe. No cheese unturned. <laughs> um... So, yeah, this cheese, uh, apparently it's best around midsummer, although they sell a lot of Valentine's Day, um, Makes sense. as you might expect. Um, but um, it takes 10 days to mature, so you can eat it after 10 days, although apparently it's better after a few weeks. Um, and it does develop its flavour, although it is quite a mild cheese, um, it's develops its flavour from the, the sort of mould rind that develops. Um, like many cheeses, mm. uh, but apparently that means you have to um, make some room <laughs> for the moulds to uh, sort of get get a handle in the uh, cheese room. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there you go. That is, that is a seasonal cheese, I love it. <laughs> Uh, it is indeed, um, and I'm very excited to try some. Apparently it makes a good breakfast cheese because of its uh, mild taste. So breakfast cheese, I guess, is a thing. Just enjoying the phrase breakfast cheese. That's so <laughs> <I know>. rich. <laughs> it makes me kind of happy. <laughs> <laughs> so I will report back on the taste of this cheese when I experience it. So if you want to tell us your favourite breakfast cheese, please do. Um, you can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at breadandthread, uh, where we will have pictures that we talk about on the podcast. Um, sort of our show notes go there, I guess. Um, you can find teasers for upcoming episodes uh, and interesting things that we retweet um, you can find similar sort of stuff on tumblr at bread and thread um i've also i'm also realizing i haven't linked to the transcripts anywhere for a while so i'm going to put a link to the transcripts in the description of this episode we're almost caught up on transcribing um we also have a patreon bread and thread if you want access to a Discord server where we chat about things we've been making and cooking and also just generally natter because it's basically an online knitting circle at this point. <laughs> um, at the £5 a month level monthly recipes, uh, uh, we uh, there, oh, is also, there is also a £10 a month level that no one's taken us up on yet, 
but if you do, we'll make a bonus episode on any topic you like, regardless of whether it fits our remit. Anything. We are also on YouTube, where we have uh, YouTube versions of our audio podcast, because um, some people prefer it that way. Uh, and we are on Tumblr at Bread and Thread as well. That's so everything because I've well. already said Tumblr. Oh, I was wondering if you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you definitely know we're on Tumblr now. So, thank you for listening. Be be nice to disabled people. The world is not nice to us. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>